0: your podcast if you enjoy what you hear today please leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts today's episode is on Gladys Bentley blues singer entertainer and lesbian icon now let's start the show Gladys Alberta Bentley was born August 12, 1907 in North Philadelphia to George and Mary Bentley. Gladys was the eldest of four kids, and her mother desperately wanted a son, y'all. Like, really, really wanted her firstborn to be a, a boy. In an article Gladys wrote about her life for Ebony Magazine, she said, When they told my mother she had given birth to a girl, she refused to touch me. She wouldn't even nurse me, and my grandmother had to raise me for six months on a bottle before they could persuade my mother to take care of her own baby. So this affected Gladys throughout her childhood, and her mother never really seemed to warm up to her, so she threw her sorrows into music, mainly through singing and playing various instruments. Other than the issues going on with her mother, Gladys felt rejected by her family for other reasons. Growing up, she didn't like wearing blouses or dresses or anything girly, really, and she opted to wear her younger brother's clothes instead. She disliked her brothers, uh, she didn't want men touching her, and she had crushes on her female teacher. Gladys really didn't understand the feeling she was having until she started to get older, you know, later in life. Um, and this led to her being teased and ostracized by classmates and family. Gladys's behavior was considered so brazen by her family that they sent her to um, psychiatrists to fix her desires. That's a quote. They diagnosed her with something called extreme social maladjustment. Which I've never heard of, so I looked it up and it's basically like an emotional disability that kind of bars you from connecting with people. Because her family refused to accept who she was and the lifestyle that she wanted to lead, Gladys ran away from home when she was 16. So Gladys arrived in Harlem in 1923. She was looking to become an entertainer and she wanted to find the freedom to live her life how she wanted to live, which is basically as a butch lesbian. So as I'm sure you guys all know, Harlem started to bloom creatively post-World War I. There was a huge underground scene, clubs, shows, speakeasies, bars, you name it. So this is the Harlem Renaissance, y'all. So this scene made way for a lot of different people to be accepted. So there was a lot of sexual liberation um, happening around Harlem and in Manhattan in general. So there were a lot of out-proud gay Black folks in Harlem. Uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., a historian, said that the Harlem Renaissance was surely as gay as it was Black. So, of course, Gladys heard about all of these things going on in Harlem, so she felt like this was the place to be. Other LGBTQ entertainers performing around Harlem, like Ethel Waters and Bessie Smith, so I'm pretty sure Gladys knew that she would find a sense of acceptance in Harlem. She started off performing at neighborhood rent parties, which were basically um, like people who were short on bills or whatever they were short on. They would throw a party at their house with live performances and they would charge everybody an entry fee. And that's how they would make rent for the month. Gladys had an amazing voice. Like y'all have to listen to some of her music. Her voice was really great. Uh, She was even better at the piano. So guests typically loved her and she started to get quote unquote, booked at these rent parties a lot. So after going around the rent party circuit for a while, she heard about an audition at the Madhouse, a nightclub that was looking for a male pianist at the time. But Gladys was able to convince the owner of Madhouse to let her audition and she ended up killing it. Like, so she got the job and... It just was up from there, really. Her buzz continued to build, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she was dressing in male drag at this time. I think she was just living freely as a lesbian, but still kind of dressing like a woman. Let me mention now that I'm getting a lot of this information from the profile Ebony Magazine ran on Gladys in their August 1952 issue called I Am A Woman Again, which Gladys wrote herself. Um, It's pretty sad because of reasons that we're going to talk about shortly, but I'm going to link it in the show notes so you guys can check it out on your own. But anyway, Gladys got hired at the Madhouse to work for $35 a week, which would today be about 520. dollars um, and then she was soon bumped up to $125 a week, which would be about $1,800 today, uh, plus tips as well. So this made her one of the highest paid Black women in the country. She was so popular that the club changed its name to Barbara's Exclusive Club because Gladys's stage name was Barbara Bobby Minton. So they basically named the club after her. That's how many, you know, people she had brought in and how popular she was. Gladys eventually moves on to the Harry Hansberry Clam House on 133rd Street, and this was one of the most popular gay speakeasies in Manhattan. So the Clam House was on a block that was referred to as Jungle Alley, like there were a lot of speakeasies and bars there, and it was on 133rd Street between 7th and Lennox. Here's when Gladys starts to perform in male drag, usually in, and this is a quote, White full dress shirts, stiff collars, small bow ties, oxfords, short edding jackets, and hair cut straight back. So Gladys was very talented and she had an amazing deep voice, like I said, but she really, really pushed the envelope of sexual expression in her performances. And that is what made her so popular. So what she would do is she would basically like come up to the women in the audience and she would sing to them. She would flirt with them, take requests, all of that. So this time that she spent at the Clam House is really where she started to incorporate um, sexuality into her acts. So as her popularity grows, she's performing at the Clam House still. She's performing at the Cotton Club, the Ubangi Club. Our girl is definitely booked and busy. She's making a lot of money. So then she starts to tour around the country, too. And she befriends multiple celebrities like Langston Hughes, um, Hugh Herbert, Cary Grant, and more. So as her popularity grows more, she becomes even more outlandish in her acts. Um, At the Ubangi Club, she had a chorus line of male dancers that were in women's drag. And they performed behind her while she was in male drag. So she's getting like a little bit more out there, a little bit more taboo. Um, She sung about sexual relationships, which is funny because that's so normal now uh, for people to sing about. And it's on the radio and like songs that are about sex can even be mainstream hits, right? But at this time, songs that were about that were considered taboo. Um, she called out men for things they did in relationships. She sung about sissies and bull daggers, which is not a nice word, but people loved it. Gladys performed in the clubs around the country for about three years, and she very, very rarely took a break. So she was always performing somewhere. In 1928, Gladys signed with a record label called OK O-Key Records. Not sure how to pronounce it, but she recorded with them and she recorded eight songs about women who have been wronged by their men. In 1930, she recorded more songs with a band called the Washboard Serenaders for Victor. In 1933, she decided she wanted to take her act to Broadway to kind of like broaden her horizons. Um, but she quickly got into a lawsuit with Harry Hansbury and Nat Pauline of the Clam House. So they were the owners of the Clam House. And basically their lawsuit was to get her to stop um, performing on Broadway because they said that the club owned a five year contract on her and her music. So they alleged in the lawsuit that she basically ghosted them for better opportunities. So I'm assuming she might have just like stopped performing or just stopped showing up to her gigs and didn't say anything. And then they heard about her going down to Broadway. So they were, they was, they were pissed. Um, so it appears that she won this lawsuit and she was able to go down to Broadway and perform, but It ended up not working out, basically because the performances were too taboo for Broadway at the time. Like, them people was not having it. (laughs) So, it was so much for them that the police started forcefully closing places that booked Gladys. So... She had to just return back to Harlem and perform there again. Even though that was a little bit of a damper on what she was trying to do, she's still flying high right now, still booked and busy. Um, she rents a $300 a month penthouse apartment on Park Avenue. Um, she purchases a car. She had servants living with her, the whole nine. Her rent, so $300 rent at that time would be equivalent to about 4600 today, which I'm sure people are paying and more to live on Park Avenue these days, so... Sounds about right. Um, So some people say that the apartment she was living in really didn't belong to her as one of her lesbian lovers, but whatever, we ain't gonna knock her success, okay? Um, In 1931, Gladys actually married a white woman whose identity is unknown in Atlantic City. So the Great Depression starts to kick in in the early 1930s, and of course, that caused a very significant economic downturn all over the country. Then prohibition was repealed in 1933, which was a crazy blow to, I'm sure, the country as well. Um, But definitely in Harlem because many, many people made their money through the speakeasies and through other things. So there was a lot of tension going on in Harlem. People weren't making the money they used to, if any at all. And it just was like tensions were just really high at this time. Um, It became too dangerous for gays and lesbians to perform around town. Um, A lot of the speakeasies closed, and a lot of the queer-friendly spots either closed as well or they just rebranded themselves. In 1937, Gladys decides to pack her bags and relocate to LA. She was a popular act at Joaquin's El Rancho, which was a gay club, until local police stopped her from performing in drag. Gladys actually got harassed a lot in LA for wearing men's clothes, so the city just wasn't very pleasant for her. There was even a point where she had to carry around permits to be allowed to perform in men's clothes. She tried to continue her musical success, but she just wasn't receiving the same response in LA as she was in Harlem, so she couldn't really pick up where she left off, even though she did perform consistently around this time, but she just wasn't the star she was in LA that she was in Harlem. So, in 1942, Gladys relocates again, this time to San Francisco, where she was billed as America's greatest sepia piano player and the brown bomber of sophisticated songs. She was a regular performer at Mona's Club 440, which was a popular lesbian bar that was known for its male drag shows. When World War II ended in 1945, a lot more gay clubs opened their doors, so this was Gladys's inn. Um, her career experienced an uptick again and she booked a lot more gigs because of this. That same year she signs with El- Excelsior, I believe it's pronounced, Records, which was a label that specialized in signing African American artists and marketing them to broad audiences. Or basically, let's say it, making them palatable for straight Christian white people, basically. So basically it was just like taking black artists that white people could that white people wouldn't be afraid of, basically. Um, And it was included in her contract with them that the song she recorded had to be about straight relationships, no lesbian stuff, nothing like that, like how the music that she made in Harlem was, because the political climate would not support songs like her previous ones. Even though Gladys experienced way more success in San Fran than she did in LA, her popularity started to wind down and she stopped getting booked as often, and I think that this might be because... Other performers that had a similar shtick were coming out to L.A. and coming out to San Fran and performing. So I think, you know, people just kind of like, you know, it just kind of fizzled out. So Gladys decides to return to L.A. and move in with her mom um, at some point around 1947. And it looks like her mom had moved to the West Coast at some point. Gladys performed often at the Rose Room in Hollywood until 1952. But I can't tell if she continued to wear men's clothes there, even though my guess is that she stopped because of what we're going to talk about next. So back to around 1947 when Gladys moves back to L.A. So in the late 1940s, the McCarthy era was in full effect. And if you don't know what the McCarthy era is, it was basically the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason, especially when related to communism. Without proper regard for evidence. So, this was rampant in Hollywood at this time. Um, Many people, actors, producers, performers, directors, you name it, everybody was being accused of being a communist, really for no damn reason. Like, a lot of stuff just kind of flew out of thin air. All it really took was for, like, one person to start a rumor about you being a communist and then, like, you would lose your job, you would be blacklisted. Like, it really ruined a lot of people's careers. Um, and I think most people who were accused of it really had nothing to do with, you know, communism. So, and a little bit of research on the McCarthy era, I just find it really interesting. Um, and from what I've read, it seems like a lot of people who were accused of being communists were either gay or rumored to be gay. So I can kind of imagine that Gladys would have been a huge target for this. And um, I'm just going off my observations of what I've, what I've read. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but it seems like Gladys started to try to live as a straight woman so that she could avoid problems, um, which is, you know, sad. But I think she just wanted to blend in at this time to not get in trouble. In 1951, Gladys met Charles Roberts, a sailor and cook who was stationed in San Diego. The pair casually dated for a few months, even though sometimes Gladys would introduce him as her brother for some reason. But eventually people realized, like, they're in a relationship. So they got married the following year in 1952, but it looks like they divorced after just five months. That same year, she marries another man named J.T. Gibson, who was a theater columnist. Um, And he died in 1952, which is just crazy. Like, 1952 was just a really crazy year for Gladys in general. But before JT passed away, Gladys wrote the essay I mentioned earlier, I Am a Woman Again for Ebony Magazine. So this article is really sad, y'all. It starts off with her describing her childhood and how she was alienated by family and friends. Um, Then it goes into her career when she was at her peak in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. And then she talks about going to the doctor right before her first marriage to a man about her weight. Um, And the doctor let her know that she had, this is a quote, infant-like sex organs that hadn't progressed past a 14-year-old child. So in order to quote-unquote fix this, the doctor starts giving Gladys three shots of female hormones every week for six months, which she credits with her being, and this is another quote, cured of homosexuality. Gladys said that the hormones helped change her life again, as well as her meeting the right man. She also mentioned in the article that she is writing a book about her life and how she wants to help others who are still trapped. Like I said, this article is really sad and it's really hard to watch a woman suppress herself like this. Um, I think that like I've also seen like some mentions of her possibly going to conversion therapy around this time. So she was also, not only was she getting these hormones, she might have been going to conversion therapy, which we all know is an absolute awful experience. Really sad that this was happening. I think as a black woman, she was trying to protect herself from everything that was going on with the McCarthy era and also just trying to salvage her career because it seemed like society had kind of backtracked a little bit as far as acceptance at this time and it really was just not safe um to be a black gay or lesbian person. So yeah, it just was really sad for me to read this. One of the saddest parts is the final paragraph where Gladys says, Certainly, I can personally testify to the tragedy and heartbreak my abnormal life has caused. I'm not going to quote the whole final paragraph, for y'all just read it on your own. I was a little wine drunk when I read this article, so I had teared up a little bit. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's just it's really sad that this is, you know, um, happening to her towards the end of her life. During her new lifestyle change, Gladys kept performing regularly at clubs, this time in dresses and women's clothing. She signed with Flame Records and recorded new music. At this time, she was also attending church regularly and studying to become a minister. In 1958, she had her only filmed performance, and it was one of her final performances as well, um, on the game show You Bet Your Life. On January 18, 1960, Gladys Bentley suddenly passed away from pneumonia at just 52 years old. So these days, Gladys is just not brought up as much as she should be. And that's just on period. I mean, I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of her until recently. Um, I feel like she's not talked about enough. And I would love to see like a movie on her. Um, some kind of play on her, just like something about her life. And like, right before I decided to do this episode, the Ma Rainey film, uh, Chadwick Boseman's uh, final film came out on Netflix and I watched it and I absolutely loved it. And then I remembered, uh, hearing about Gladys Bentley and I was like, okay, I gotta do something on her, you know, for the podcast. So yeah, there've been a couple of fictional characters based on Gladys in different books like Strange Brother by Blair Niles has a character- that's kind of based on her Deep River by Clement Woods. is another book with a character based on her and then Parties by Carl Van Vechten, which I am thinking about adding to our list to read for the vixen book club um carl van Vecten is basically a historian that covered the harlem renaissance so i think that would be a really good book for the um, book club uh speaking of the book club the official announcement with all the details is coming very very soon i'm gonna announce it on instagram so make sure you follow on instagram at the vixen memoirs so you can stay updated but anyway back to gladys um but yeah other than those book mentions she just hasn't been honored very often. But in 2019, the New York Times profiled her in their "Overlooked No More series, which I love. And that series is basically just the New York Times like republishes obituaries for historical women or um, historical minorities, things like that. And sometimes like they add other little anecdotes in there too. But it's really good to learn about people you may have never heard about. So that is the story of Gladys Bentley, y'all. I'm so glad I got to cover her because... I heard about her a couple months ago on um, a podcast that I listened to, and I was like, hmm, a black woman doing drag in the 1930s? So I had to add her to my list for Vixen, so I was really excited to cover her this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. What do you guys think of our very first LGBTQ subject on this podcast? What other LGBTQ figures should I cover? I have a list going, but I want to know who y'all want next. So definitely hit me up with that. And I will see you guys next week for a brand new episode. Thank you for listening to Vixen. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to leave a review. If you have a submission, feel free to email vixenpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.